The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. This morning. Hey, we're a week away from Resurrection Sunday. Um, it's the pivot point in the story of God. And uh, we have been in a, we've been in a series called The Storytelling God, where we've been looking at the parables that Jesus told. And uh, so today, what I want to do is I want to kind of sort of take a break from the parables. We're done with the series today, by the way. But today is the culmination of all the parables that Jesus told. And so I want to look at the last day of Jesus' life and specifically at a few phrases that Jesus said from the cross on Good Friday. And then this coming Friday, um, Tyler is going to preach for us and uh, he's going to teach us on Good Friday. Let me pray for us and I want to do something real quick. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the words that you've given us. God, may this not just be another religious exercise this morning. God, may we hear the words of Jesus, the red letters this morning, the words that you would say to us, Lord, for those of us who need hope, who need encouragement, who need forgiveness, God, who need a promise, Jesus, this morning, these are your words, and so we commend them to you, and we ask you to speak deeply to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Um, real quick, let me um, just say this. Yesterday was an amazing day. Um, it was a phenomenal day in the life of our church, and I want to say, I think a church is never more like Jesus than when we're giving and when we're serving, and yesterday was an extraordinary expression of the body of Christ here in Burbank serving our community. I've gotten email after email already. I heard from people yesterday at the event who said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, There's a bunch of you guys in here who served. And I want to say this, God chose some people over the last month or so to raise up and to become leaders in our church. Furthermore, those of you guys who served yesterday, I believe with all of my heart that you, you, uh, you form friendships that are deeper when you're serving alongside each other. And so I pray Praise God for those of you guys who have raised your hand and have said, I desire to serve the body of Christ here. Um, The mission team that was here, I don't know if you guys know this, but we have teams that come all across uh, America that come and serve our city. And the team that came this week was from Atlanta. They were actually from the church that I came from. A lot of them were students that were in my ministry um, when I was in Atlanta. Okay, bear with me just for a moment, okay? Um, so, so they did this thing. I, I'm sure some other teams have probably done it before. But what they did was, is this backwards again? I'm sorry, I'm dyslexic. Okay, here we go. Um, so, so what they did was they took this sheet and at the end of the week, they had written names all throughout the week of people that they had encountered and had conversations with. And, um, and so what they did at the end of the week is they prayed for every one of these people by name. I think this is really, really cool because every conversation, every name on this sheet represents a conversation of hope and encouragement that ultimately we hope leads to the gospel. Now, let me tell you who wrote the names on the sheet. They were ninth and 10th grade kids, 14 and 15 years old, who paid 1400 bucks to fly from Atlanta to come to Los Angeles to serve our city. I think that's phenomenal that a teenager would give up a spring break, first of all, that they would pay 1400 bucks to come to a city that doesn't belong to them, that many of them have never been to in their life, and they invest a week of their time, their effort, their energy, and I promise you, I called them before they got on the plane this morning, they were exhausted today after an entire week of ministry. I wanna say this to the body of Christ here, our church family. Teenagers invested a week into our city. You need to invest in our city too. 
<laughs> and that's all I'll say about that. But praise God for an incredible week, all right? All right, let me do this. Yeah, we can clap for them. That was awesome. All right, I, I, I want to preach a message this morning titled, I Am Them and the Words That Change the World, okay? I, I'm, a, I'm not going to go long today. I, I just, uh, really, my heart this morning is a lead up to what we're going to celebrate next weekend, and it's the pivot point of history. It's the pivot point of Christianity, and, and I just want to bring us right to the well this morning, and uh, I want us to focus on the last words of Jesus, okay? You may know some famous last words. You can probably repeat some famous last words from some folks. If you ever watched... Uh, old Western movies, you, you remember the, 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 comic, uh, the comical nature, sort of the, the fun moment of, of the cowboy who got uh, shot in the gut and his last request was to smoke a cigarette. And while he's smoking a cigarette, he's expressing his last words. It's kind of a poignant, um, pivotal moment in the story. And um, I don't know if you know famous last words. Steve Jobs, the last thing he said before he passed was, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Charlie Chaplin on his deathbed, the priest prayed, may God have mercy on your soul. And Charlie Chaplin, the last thing that he said was, why not? It all belongs to him. Um, a famous jazz drummer was heading into surgery and he was being prepped by the nurse. And she said to him, is there anything you cannot take? And he said, yes, country music. <laughs> Dying men know that their last words are pivotal words because they know that those moments are the last moments that they will ever have a chance to breathe into humanity. And so Jesus's last words are instructive to us. And at some point in the life of our church, we will walk through the seven statements that Jesus made from the cross before he passed. But this morning, I just want to touch on a few. And I want us to see the last things that Jesus said before, before he passed. And then next Sunday, we're going to celebrate everything that he said comes to fruition because of the resurrection, okay? So here's what I'm going to do. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32, there are four audiences that Jesus addressed with his last statements on the cross. And I want us to look at all four of those audiences this morning, and we're going to do it briefly. And I want us to see this. All of us exist in one of those audiences this morning, all right? Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. And the scripture says, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with Jesus to be executed. In verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, this is the first statement that Jesus makes from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The, soldier, the soldiers also mocked him and they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then finally in verse 38, and there was written a notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. The first audience that Jesus addressed in his dying words, his last few moments on earth, was the mob. And there was an incredible mob mentality that was going on on Good Friday. If you know the story, Jesus is standing before Pilate. His body is bloody. It's beaten. It's an unrecognizable mess of a human being. And he's standing before Pilate. And the crowd is standing before Jesus watching on. And when Pilate requests, as was the custom, who should I release? The mob mentality takes over. And just a few verses before here in Luke chapter 23, you remember what the mob said. Remember what they said? What did they say? Crucify him. Crucify him. And so the mob mentality takes over. They're asking for a man who had committed no sin 
should not have even been placed on the platform as a candidate for execution. And they're asking that the man who is innocent be put to death. Now, you understand what they were asking for. They were asking for crucifixion. And if you know the story of crucifixion, you know that from about 6 BC until 337 AD, when Constantine banned it, crucifixion was the most harsh and cruel form of punishment that the Roman Empire offered. And so as the mob mentality takes over and Jesus is standing before the mob, they're all shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. There were multiple crowds that existed that day. There were multiple mobs that Jesus addressed that day. First was the crowd that was standing before him, Luke chapter 23, verse 36. There were the religious leaders that were standing in front of him and making fun of him, Luke 23, verse 35. There were the soldiers that were, had put him to death that were standing before him. There were the uh, criminals who were standing on either side of him, Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, says before they even went to the cross, the criminals were making fun of Jesus and insulting Jesus. And then the scripture goes on to tell us in Matthew chapter 27, verse 30, that there were even passerbys that were walking by as Jesus was on the cross and they were insulting Jesus too. Every single one of the crowd that day had one thing in common. And what they had in common was their ignorance. Their ignorance that what they were shouting and who they were shouting to was actually the savior of the world, was the healing for their souls, was the salve for their pain. And they all were ignorant in what they were shouting and what they were requesting. Yet Jesus, in his final words from the cross, prays for them. And the prayer that Jesus offers for the mob, and for the crowd that day, was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I, I think this statement, and, and I hope that we're going to, we'll do a series over the next few years, over the last statements, and we'll unfold this even deeper. But, but this just, the, the, the praying, the dying words of Jesus in this moment really gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. And the heart of God reminds us that this was not a revenge story that God's been writing. It's a redemption story that God had been writing because we know that Jesus even said a few verses back that God had legions of angels that he could call on that could remove his body from the cross if he wanted to. Yet Jesus, in obedience to the Father, decided to stay on the cross and, and, um, and make uh, possible the forgiveness of sins. And so what's further instructive in this prayer that Jesus makes here is that it's in, in the imperfect tense, which indicates there's a repeated action that happens in the past tense. So when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, it's not just like Jesus said it one time and then it was done. Very likely, Jesus began praying, Father, forgive them, when his hands and his feet were being nailed to the cross. Jesus was praying, Father, forgive them, when the crowds were walking by and insulting him. Jesus was praying, Father, forgive them when the criminals on either side were shouting insults at Jesus. It was a repeated action that happened over and over between the hour of 9 a.m. and noon. And Jesus prays over and over, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. The application for the audience that Jesus addressed with this prayer is that when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, I... I am them. You are them. You were the crowd that passed by Jesus. 
I was hanging beside Jesus, shouting insults. I was the one who put Jesus on the cross. The application here is that I am in the mob mentality. I am in the crowd that was crying, crucify Jesus. And just like the the people who were in the crowd that day who demonstrated their ignorance and not fully understanding who it is that they're placing on the cross and who they're asking to be condemned. I, in my own ignorance, have done the same to Jesus, both by my words and by my actions. I have shouted, crucify them. But here's the beauty of the gospel this morning. All of us, at some point in time in our life, can identify with the mob mentality and with being in the crowd that Jesus addressed. And in spite of my ignorance and in spite of uh, my vengeance against a God who who I may think is responsible for pain in my life or, or who I may just even be new neutral towards. Jesus looks at us in our insults, whether they're verbal, whether they're expressive, whether they're known or they're unknown. And Jesus looks at us and he says today, just like he did in the last few hours of his life, Jesus still prays for us. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And Jesus continues to pray that prayer until we're aware of our own sin and we come to a place where we bow our knee and place our faith and our trust in Jesus. You understand the idea of forgiveness. Um, If you've been married, if you've been in a relationship, if you've been a parent, if you've been an employee, I mean, it doesn't matter what sphere of life and what what culture, what genre you're in, what, what season of life you're in, you all understand this idea of offending someone and in need of forgiveness. And many of us walk around with this idea, holding this idea of needing forgiveness often. And when we rightly see what Jesus did for us, We understand that I'm guilty before God because of my insults, because of my action, because of my attitude, because of my posture towards God, because of my ignorance towards God, because of my neutrality towards God, in need of forgiveness. And when I understand the gospel rightly, I understand that Jesus looks back at me and he says, Father, forgive Matt. Father, forgive me for they know not what they're doing. Jesus offers forgiveness for you today. I don't know what your life is like this morning. I don't know how you walk into a church and I don't know what you're wrestling through and what you're struggling with, but Jesus looks you in the eyes today and in the mob mentality that we have towards Jesus, he says, I offer forgiveness. There's a second audience that Jesus addresses. Starts in verse 39 of Luke 23. And it was the thieves that were on his right and his left. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. This wasn't the first time that they had insulted Jesus. Now they're on the cross. Jesus is hung between heaven and earth, and there's criminals on each side. And while he's on the cross, the criminals are shouting insults. But we know from Matthew chapter 27 that the insults started way before he ever went to the cross. And the thief said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But then there's one thief. There's two. There's one thief who looks at the other, and he says... Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We're punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him. And here's the second statement from the cross that Jesus makes. Truly. That's the first words out of Jesus' mouth. He could say, Amen. The essence of what Jesus says when he begins the second statement, truly, is that I agree with what you're saying. Truly, 
I tell you, today, not tomorrow, not next week, not when I can get around to it, not when I've forgiven you and I've gotten over how you've mistreated me, but today you will be with me in paradise. The second statement that Jesus makes from the cross demonstrates a, uh, this tale of two thieves and a dividing line for all of eternity, right? So we've got these two thieves that Jesus addresses and he offers hope. Two thieves that have a similar past, two thieves that are equally bad, Two thieves that we don't know what their crime is. We don't know what they've committed. But two thieves who have cursed Jesus at the beginning of the day. And now we fast forward a few hours later. And one of those thieves is now speaking and conversing with the true Messiah who saved his soul. And who at that very minute, by the way, is saving the souls of all of humanity who would place their faith and trust in Jesus. Can I say to you, from the birth of Jesus until the death of Jesus, Jesus had a primary focus. And his primary focus was on the outsider, the outcast, those who were down and dirty, those who didn't fit in, those who were in need of a Savior who would forgive, who would forget, who would offer hope, and who would offer encouragement. And Jesus specialized in that. Can you imagine, you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan whether you've been in church before or whether you haven't, you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan, the, 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 the person who sees the need and meets the need. You know what Jesus is? He's not the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the Great Samaritan because now Jesus is in the ditch of pain and hurt and punishment with a criminal who got himself there, who spent his entire life getting himself into this mess. And now Jesus, in a moment, in an instant, in one phrase, is now relieving him of all pain. And so he says, today, in essence, Jesus is predicting that, that, that his death is going to occur today. Crucifixion, um, you could have lasted on the cross for two, three, even four days. But Jesus is saying, this day, before the sun goes down, this day, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a Persian word. It gives us this idea of a walled garden. And a Persian king would, would, um, would invite, when he wanted to honor one of his subjects, he would invite him into his garden. And he would be a close companion to the king in that moment. And he would walk with him in the garden. The subject and the king would walk together. What Jesus is saying here is that if we understand scripture rightly, we go all the way back to the garden. We go all the way back to the garden where Adam and Eve were. They sinned against God. They created... Um, chaos and havoc in our, our universe, in our world. And everything becomes disjointed in that moment when they decide to rebel against God. And so what happened in the garden was that Jesus had no option but to, but to remove Adam and Eve from the garden. And when he removed Adam and Eve from the garden, he removed this proximity with Adam and Eve. Because you remember, the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He conversed with Adam and Eve in the garden. Yet when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it removed them from the proximity of God. And now what's happening on the cross here is that Jesus is looking a criminal in the eyes and he is offering a return to the garden, a new sort of paradise. And Jesus' promise to the, to the thief in these last statements, in these last few words that he's making here, are not removed from the proximity of himself. Do you understand what I mean here? Jesus is saying, 
When Adam and Eve sinned, they were removed from my presence. But what I've done on the cross here has made it possible for us to converse again, for us to be companions again. When a king asks his subject to and invites him into the garden to be a companion, to be someone who can converse and have conversation with, what Jesus is doing on the cross is he is saying, I am repairing the breach. I am breaking down the wall. And now you and I will be together as my honored guest in paradise today. And I I just wonder this morning if that's the experience that some of you need today as well. You felt so removed from God. You felt so, uh, so distanced from him. Maybe some of you, I don't take for granted that maybe you just never even really even considered that, that God could be such that he is intimately and and, and, and engaged in your life. And Jesus makes the same promise to you that he makes to the thief. Today, today I invite you to be my treasured companion that can converse with me, that can share your deepest needs and your hurt and everything that you, I, I am that God whom you can converse with. Now, now, here's the thing. We can't just make application like, okay, this is a promise that Jesus is making for a future time. Like, like paradise here, is that heaven? Yes, it is heaven, but Jesus' promise is not just, and the application for us in Jesus' words here is not just, one day you'll get to walk with God. <laughs> Jesus' promise to us today is that today you can walk with me. You can converse with me. I am your companion today. You don't just have to look to a future time when we're in heaven together, but today you can live as if you actually belong in heaven in a future time. This is the moment I've created, and we can be companions today. And I wonder, I wonder this morning if that's the experience that someone in this room needs. Now, there's a third audience. There's a third audience this morning, and it's found in the book of John, chapter 19. John, chapter 19. Starting in verse 25, it's on the screen if you don't have a copy of God's word. John chapter 19, starting in verse 35, this is, I'm sorry, verse 25, this is what Jesus says. And near the cross stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there, by the way, you notice that Jesus doesn't mention any men. And by the way, the first time we see Mary, she's preparing for a wedding. And here we see Mary who's preparing for a funeral. So in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, the only man that Jesus mentions at the cross that day, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, who was John, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. He's pointing to John at the moment. And then in verse 27, and to the disciple, meaning John, Jesus looks at him in the eyes and he addresses John and he says, here is your mother. From that time on, this is fascinating to me, the disciple, meaning John, took Jesus' mother into his home. So the third audience that Jesus addresses here is family and friends. He's got the mob, he's got the criminals, and now he's got family and friends. From the 9 a.m. hour until the noon hour, Jesus repeatedly prays these prayers. Father, forgive them. And he only interrupts himself twice. He only interrupts himself twice. Once, when he looks at the criminal and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. The second time he interrupts himself from 9 a.m. to noon is when he makes a statement to his mother and then to John. Jesus was obviously the oldest son of Mary. And 
proper Jewish custom, Jesus, we assume in this moment that Joseph has passed. He's no longer on the scene. And Joseph, I mean, Jesus is the primary caretaker for his mother's emotional needs, her physical needs, and her spiritual needs. And now he's making provision. He, can you just imagine this moment, right? Like a bloodied, uh, uh, um, a, a, a man who is beyond human recognition, suffering in excruciating pain. Excruciating mean from the cross. He's excruciating pain. And in that moment of his pain, he looks out and he imagines the heart of his mother being broken. And in that moment, Jesus has the compassion, the audacity to make provision for his mother's emotional needs and her physical needs. That's what Jesus is doing here. When he looks at John, there's, by the way, Jesus had other brothers. Jesus had at least two sisters, but we assume that Jesus' other brothers and his sisters were not standing at the cross watching Jesus that day. And so Jesus had one person he could turn to. It was his most beloved disciple. It was his faithful disciple. He knew he could place the care of his mother into the hands of John, and John would faithfully care for Mary. And so in this moment, Jesus looks at John and he says, she is now yours to care for. So here's John standing alone, tears streaming down his eyes. He's watching what's happening to his savior. And he's commissioned to care for the physical and emotional needs of Jesus' mother. Do you know that Jesus isn't blind to your emotional needs today either? He's not blind to your physical needs Jesus consistently demonstrated over and over in the gospel his care for people's physical needs, you know. Multiple times we hear Jesus healing a sick person, um, healing a blind man. We hear of Jesus raising a daughter from the dead, raising a son from the dead. We see Jesus um, healing a paralyzed servant, casting out demons. Jesus was consistently concerned about the emotional and the physical needs of people, and he spent much of his ministry. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, one of the verses that I believe God spoke to my heart before he called me to ministry, it says, Jesus was making a circuit of the villages. He was going round about. And the word that is used to describe Jesus in that moment was compassion. He had compassion on people. And what we see preceding that moment of Jesus making a circuit of the village, villages, having compassion on people, was this action and attitude that he was going to make provision for physical and emotional needs. You're not absent from that provision either today. Jesus desires to make provision for you just as he desired to make provision for his mother who was weeping over the loss of her son. You also know that in that moment, she had to cease being the mother of Jesus, listen to me, so that she could become the daughter of the Son of God. And so Mary submits and surrenders herself to Jesus. John makes provision and what we have to conclude is that the pain that breaks our hearts, listen to me, the pain that's breaking your heart today, it also breaks God's heart. It also breaks God's heart. We also have to assume that because Jesus made provision for someone in the crowd to care for someone who had needs, that God also desires that we care for each other's needs. That's one of the beauties of the body of Christ is that we care for each other's needs. Do we miss needs often? Yes, we do. 
Are there needs that go unmet? There always will be. But the moments that God allows us the ability to recognize and understand what's happening in the body of Christ, God looks at us just like he looked at John and he says to you, Matt, I've appointed you to look after the physical and emotional needs of this person who's suffering. Story City, I've appointed you to meet the needs of a community that needs hope and encouragement. Are you that person today? Are you struggling in need of emotional and physical support? We can't meet every need. Almost every single week we have somebody that says, I need housing. You know what I wish? I wish Story City could buy like an entire city's worth of housing. And when you come to us, you say, I need housing. We say, no problem. We got apartment 13B. That's yours, right? We're not there yet. Maybe we'll get there. But God's appointed us to help look after your needs. I can't promise that every need will be met, but we're here. And that's part of the beauty of what Jesus has commissioned us to do. And that's the beauty of what Jesus did on the cross that day. Now, the last audience, and I'm going to breeze through this really quickly. First audience is the mob. The second audience is the criminal. The third audience is the family and friends, those who are dearest to Jesus. Listen to me. The last audience that Jesus addresses is the Father. It's God himself. This is what scripture says in verse 28 of John 19. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled. This wasn't just a happenstance scenario. This wasn't just a charismatic person who was born, grew a crowd, people surrounded him, and when he died, everything dispersed. No, this was, this was a plan in the heart of God throughout all of eternity. This was God's plan. In fact, we have hundreds of prophecies hundreds of occasions where people said, this will be the occasion of the Messiah. This will happen, and you will know that he's the Messiah. And in the cross that day, Jesus fulfilled those prophecies according to scripture. And Jesus said, I am thirsty. One of the prophecies that would be fulfilled. Verse 29, a jar of wine vinegar was there so that they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, the last words from the cross, the last statement that Jesus makes. It's finished. It's finished. And with that, the scripture says, Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. You know, the small just these, these small statements in our life can carry a tremendous weight and a tremendous meaning, right? That moment you looked at someone for the first time, I told my wife I would never tell her I loved her until the day that I asked her to marry me. The day I asked her to marry me, I said, baby, I love you. Small statement, huge meaning. That day your spouse looks at you and says, I'm pregnant. The day your spouse, who's been pregnant for several months now, looks at you and says, it's a girl. And that phone call comes and says, you got the job. Small statements, huge meaning. The last statement that Jesus would make, small statement, huge meaning, it. It is finished. I don't know if you have ever had the experience where you just like, I, I don't, I, God, I, I don't measure up. 
I'm not worthy. I had that experience every Sunday morning at about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and I'm taking a shower, and I know I'm coming to preach to you. I had that experience, and I say, Jesus, I'm not worthy. Jesus says, it's finished. It's finished. Jesus looks at us, and he says, you know what, in your pain, in your shame, in your guilt, in your sin, you don't have to run from me. Adam and Eve ran from me. You know what happened? They took on shame and guilt. But when you run to me and not from me, I take on the shame and the guilt. And I did that on the cross. Matt, it's finished. It's finished. You don't have to run from God anymore. He, he doesn't have a snitch. He's, he's, not, he's not running after you every time you mess up and make the mistake. He's not, he's not bearing down on you, just waiting to see when you're gonna make another mistake. Somebody in your life has done that to you and you've transposed that onto God, but that's not God. That's not how he treats you. And he looks at you this morning and he says, it is finished. You can't, you can't multiply the punishment because of your sin. There may be additional consequences because of it, but you cannot multiply the punishment of your sin. It is finished. When Jesus took his final breath, he made it possible for my life to begin. Redemption. Jesus was treated like a sinner so that I could be treated like a saint. And God looks down on you today and he says it's finished. Where are you today? How did you come into a church service? Are you in need of forgiveness? Are you like the thief who needs a bit of hope today? Do you need some encouragement for your soul, for your spiritual and emotional needs? Jesus offered the Father faithfulness and obedience. He could have come down from the cross. He was fully God, fully man. He bore the weight of your sin. And he says it's finished. I should bow your heads with me. We're going to close our service today. I don't know how you made your way into this service, but I'm glad you're here. As one of the pastors here at Story City Church, I just want to say with passion and compassion, your story is welcome here. And Jesus looks down on you today and says, regardless of how you came, I'm not going to leave you there. That's not my desire. So how did you come today? Can I ask you, maybe you're here this morning and you came without a conversing, conversating, walk in the garden relationship with God. You just know him from a distance. You've heard about him. Maybe you're just kind of neutral towards him. And God looks down on you today and says, today, you can be with me in paradise. Not just a future moment, but a moment where I walk with you every single day on the mountaintop and in the valley. I know your circumstance. I know your scenario. Nothing surprises me. I know what you're walking through. And you can talk to me about it when I become your Savior and when I become your Lord. And maybe today you walked in here and you're in need of that relationship. There's nothing magical or mystical about it. 
We don't make you stand on the stage, make you say anything you don't want to say. It's simply a moment where you do honest, authentic business before God and you are genuine with God in the authenticity of your heart and you say, God, today I acknowledge that I've sinned against you. Jesus, today I acknowledge that you died on the cross for my sin. You demonstrated your love for me and that while I was still a sinner, you died for me and that if I confess my sin to you, turn from my sin, the scripture calls it repent of my sin and walk with you. Jesus, you make the promise to me that today, not that I can be, ought to be, might be, but that I will be saved. Some of you need that saving relationship, a conversating, intimate walk with God in the garden of your life every single day. Would you trust your life to Jesus? I don't mean if you're a believer coming back to God. I don't mean rededicating your life. I mean outside of a faith, not having a faith in Jesus, but today, the pivotal moment where you look at God and you say, just like the thief on Jesus' side, where he said, today, I want to be with you. There was another thief who heard the offer of hope and he turned from God and he rejected it. Don't be that person today. And if that's your desire, that's your desire, I just want you to do business with God and say, God, I need to be saved. Nothing magical or mystical about it. If you pray that prayer to God this morning, I want to know who you are. I want to help you begin the walk with God today. Now, finally, and then we're done. If you're a believer, <laughs> you've got a walking, conversating, available companion that's ready to walk with you in the garden of your life. He's available. He wants to walk with you and talk with you. If you're in need of that this morning, just talk to him. Cry out to him. He says, it's finished. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you're in Him today, you may feel a million miles away, but He's near. He's ready to conversate. You can do some business with God. Do it this morning. In Jesus' name, God be with us as we sing. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.